So this morning, and I'm also imagining uh, two weeks from now, I'd like to explore the theme of views, beliefs, and opinions, and how to work with them. And that theme actually came out of a suggestion from this group maybe a month ago. I think we can see in the world that certain kinds of dogmatic views or strongly held views have been a huge problem in the history of humanity. You know, that strong and dogmatic views have been responsible for all sorts of murderous acts tremendous inhumanity, tremendous brutality in the name of certain views or ideas or beliefs. I think that's quite evident, you know, and we can, we can um, wonder about what it is that leads to such beliefs and whether there's a necessary connection between such beliefs and a vast amount of suffering, but it's pretty easy to see that strongly and even, we might say, dogmatically held views can be a huge problem. And we can see that those kinds of views, those kinds of very strongly held views, exist in all sorts of parts of our lives. We can see them very clearly, probably most easily, in the, uh, you know, one place we see them quite easily is in the political realm. We see ideologies, particularly the last few centuries, that have often been very strong, people willing to die for beliefs, people willing to kill for beliefs. We also see that a lot of those beliefs have been connected with the areas of religion and what we might call spirituality. Similarly, often the case that people would uh, die and sometimes kill for religious beliefs. I think we're quite aware of much of that history. And we can also see that these kind of strong beliefs are also there in everyday life. They're not, not just in, in these more public or collective realms, that, they're, that we may have very strong beliefs about ourselves, about others, about members of our family, <laughs> you know, about friends, about coworkers, about bosses, that can also be very, very strong beliefs. And so what I'd like to do is to explore this whole area, start to explore it um, today, and really ask the question, is the problem with these kind of very strong beliefs, or what is the problem with strong beliefs? Are beliefs necessarily a problem? Are there good beliefs? You know, are there bad beliefs that we could identify? Is the belief the problem, or is what people do with the beliefs the problem? How do we sort out this whole area and make sense? Because it's very clear that very strong beliefs have been connected with vast amounts of suffering and are still connected. How do we sort that out? How do we see that not just as a problem of people out there, but also very much a practice question 
for ourselves and something that comes up in, in our daily lives. And so I'd like to do that today sort of in three steps and then have some time also to talk together. Um, first step, I'll bring up the how this was treated, uh, at least a, a brief account of how this was treated in the historical teachings of the Buddha. Because it's quite powerful to see that the Buddha basically said, abandon all dogmatic beliefs. They lead to suffering. Very clear teaching. And I'd like to first unpack that teaching some and say what that was about. And then I'd like to look and ask the question, why are views or beliefs, the, the, the word that the Buddha used was ditti, which is usually translated as view, but I think we could also translate it as belief in some way. Um, so secondly, I want to ask, why are uh, views potentially a problem? Why are they? What's, what's the problem? And what is, what is it about how we uh, work with, take beliefs that is problematic? And then thirdly, I want to suggest some concrete practices that we can explore essentially in the next two weeks and for the rest of our lives that will help us to uh, continue to explore beliefs, views, strong opinions, and so forth. So that's my, that's my intention for this morning. So it's pretty dramatic, actually, if one reads the text of the Buddha, that we have this very, very strong critique of what we might call adherence to dogmatic views. And he really saw these dogmatic views as views which went beyond what we can actually know directly. And that's, in, in a way, how we might be defining views here, as, as those views or beliefs which go significantly beyond what we can directly know and experience in our lives. They sometimes would be called speculative views, views which in some sense, um, he, he would say, overshoot experience, or we might say overshoot the evidence, overshoot what we can more directly know. And to that extent, they're speculative, they go beyond experience, and yet humanity has worked with such beliefs. It's almost as if it's an inherent tendency. I think it's connected with our tendency to look for meaning, which I think is an inherent tendency in our lives. And yet that inherent tendency to look for meaning can lead to all sorts of suffering. My suffering is meaningful. I can understand my suffering or my difficulties because you caused it. Very meaningful. It was, meaning, it was not meaningful to me why I was suffering until I realized it was your fault, <laughs> or until I realized it was the fault of this group, or this ethnicity, and so forth. And so it seems to be inherent in finding a certain kind of meaning. That meaning can be quite misguided. 
But I think that this tendency is inherent in a certain way that we look to find coherence. We look to find meaning. We look to find order in our lives. And that tendency can lead to all sorts of suffering. And so what the Buddha is eventually going to say is rest as much as you can in direct experience and be very, very careful and cautious about going beyond experience. That's going to be his response. And that's not easy to do. And so I'll, I'll try to unpack what that means as we, as we go forward. There's some very famous passages where the Buddha talks about <clears throat> the problematic quality of views. And I'll, I think I'll, <clears throat> I'll look at two of those passages this morning and maybe some more uh, next time, because some of them are quite dramatic and probably uh, many of you have heard of these or, or know of some of these passages. <clears throat> One of the passages is related to the <clears throat> parable of the poisoned arrow, and I want to talk about that. Some of you may know this. It's in the uh, <clears throat> Majima Nikaya, which is this big brown book that you can find in the bookstore or maybe your, your, your good libra- local libraries. <laughs> Light reading. Um, it doubles. If, you, if you're not reading it, it doubles. It serves a lot of other functions because it's a very hefty book. I mean, it can <laughs> be a, a book, book stop on one end of your bookcase and all sorts of other options. And so this is um, Majima Nikaya 63, uh, which is called The Shorter Discourse to Malankyapada. Malankyapuda. <clears throat> and Malankyapuda has a deep interest in speculative spiritual views. And he basically, I'll, I'll read from the text. When it was evening, the venerable Malankyapuda rose from meditation and went to the Blessed One, the Buddha, After paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told him, Here, venerable sir, while I was alone in meditation, the following thought arose in my mind. These speculative views have been undeclared by the Buddha. Undeclared means the Buddha refuses to take a stand on a series of the main medical-physical views of his time. He's basically saying, I'm not going there. (laughs) And, And there... Classically, a list of ten views that the Buddha refuses to talk about. And in the technical language here, he calls them undeclared. I will not declare a view on these opinions. And they're actually not so different from what core religious views would be now. So here they are. Here are the ten. And, but but, but Malunkyaputta says, if the Buddha does not declare these to me, I will abandon my training. <laughs> you know, you know, either teach me or I'm out of here. <laughs> Tell me what these are or I'm gone. And so um, I will return to the low life, he says. <laughs> you know, you know, see, there's, there's actually humor here <laughs> in the text. Sometimes we read these texts, it doesn't seem so humorous, but there's actually a fair amount of humor here. So listen to the text for signs of humor also. <laughs> so, so he goes on and he, he mentions these ten core views. If the Blessed One knows that the world is eternal, so the first 
view is the world is eternal. The second view is the world is not eternal. The third view is the world is finite. The fourth is the world is not finite. So he's going to go through these and, and mention them. If the Blessed One knows that the world is eternal, let the Blessed One declare to me that the world is eternal. In other words, let him affirm that this metaphysical view should be held. If the Blessed One knows the world is not eternal, let the Blessed One declare to me that the world is not eternal. If the Blessed One does not know the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, then it is straightforward for one who does not know and does not know, does not see to say, I do not know. I do not see. He said, give me some answer on this. I want to know. I, want to, I need metaphysical clarity. And then he goes on, if the Blessed One knows the world is finite or the world is infinite, you know, so what's the nature of the world? Does it go on forever in space? You know, the first one asked, does it, go over, go, does it keep on going in time? The second set of questions, does it keep on going in space? We ask these questions now, right? What about the Big Bang or is space infinite or is the, is the universe infinite? We have, we have our own theories to account for that. And so he goes on, then the fifth and sixth question, uh, are the soul and body one, or are they different? In other words, they're saying, is the mind the same as the body, or is the mind different from the body? You know, we have that question now. And in, in the Indian context, it's a big question, because if the mind and the body are the same, it's very hard to make sense of rebirth and reincarnation, you see. So, if you, so you're almost driven to say, that the body and the mind are separate if you believe in rebirth and reincarnation, because otherwise you get into all these quandaries, right? And so or the, or, and people have been, over the centuries, have tried to make sense of that, you know, and try, well, there's, there's a subtle body, or there's something, there's something else other than the gross material body that survives. But the Buddha is being asked, are the mind and body separate? So it's a, it's a kind of a loaded question in that context. Are they the same? Are they different? After death, does a Buddha exist or not exist? <laughs> you know? uh, does the Buddha get reborn, in other words? Or does the Buddha... What happens to the Buddha after life, after, after the Buddha's life ends? And so he goes on to say, basically, if you know these, tell me. And if you don't know them, tell me I don't know. And so here's... The Buddha's answer, and it's a very it's a very strong response. If anyone would say thus, I will not lead the holy life until the Blessed One uh, declares to me, the world is eternal. Or and he goes through the whole list of all these ten questions. If anyone would say, I will not lead the holy life until until the Buddha tells me an answer to these questions that person would die. <laughs> Suppose, Malukyaputta, and here's the parable of the arrow, of the poisoned arrow. Suppose, Malukyaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out the arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And he would say, 
I will not let the surgeon pull out the arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was short or uh, tall or of middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the man who wounded me lives in such a village or town or city. You get the humor here, right? Um, until I know whether the, the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow. It's kind of, he's on a, what? The Buddha's on a roll. <laughs> okay. Okay. Until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark. Until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated. Until I know with what kinds of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted whether these were from a vulture, or a crow, or a hawk, or a peacock, or a stork. <laughs> Until I know what kind of sinew the shaft that wounded me was bound, whether that of an ox, or a buffalo, or a lion, or a monkey. Until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped, or curved, or barbed, or calf-toothed, or oleander. <laughs> All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malukyaputta, if anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life under the Blessed One until the Blessed One declares to me on these questions, that would still remain undeclared, and meanwhile that person would die. It's a very strong teaching. Another place in the teachings, the Buddha is also asked these kind of questions, and he says, my teachings are like a raft that helps you move over a sea. And maybe I'll read this other passage as well. Suppose a person in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear, but there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. And suppose that person would think, suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together into a raft supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. And then the man collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bound them together into a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with his hands, he got safely across to the far shore. Then when he had got across and arrived to the far shore, he might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me and was, I was supported by it and I got safely across to the far shore. Should I then carry the raft on my head and load it on my shoulders? What do you think? Would this be a good idea? He's talking to his practitioners. And he says, now you should see that my teachings are similar to a raft. They help you address suffering. They should not be carried once you have freed yourself from suffering. And so what we have in these two very strong images is a pretty clear view that the core of practice is addressing the reality of suffering. And the core of what a spiritual life should be about is not about speculative views or opinions. In fact, the Buddha says these are actually irrelevant, not helpful to really addressing the core 
issues of a spiritual life, which is how to deal with suffering. And so the Buddha often says, I don't make declarations on any of these teachings or any of these views or beliefs, such as whether the world is eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite, whether the mind and the body or the soul and the body are the same or different, and so forth. I don't declare on that, but he says, I do declare what he called his teaching of the Four Truths, that there is suffering, that there are roots to suffering, that there's a way to transform suffering, that it's possible to transform suffering, and that there's a concrete set of practical steps to get there. He says, I do declare that. He uses the same language and talks about declaring. So what this is pointing to is that the center of these teachings that we get from the Pali Canon, from the teachings of the Buddha, is a highly pragmatic teaching. I think it's one of the reasons why we're here, that we're drawn to the pragmatism. Many of us may have come from religious backgrounds where there was a lot of emphasis on belief and not so much on practical ways to transform suffering. Right? So we get a very clear teaching here that he's saying that to try to resolve these metaphysical views is both irrelevant to really dealing with the issues of life and it actually could distract you. It actually could be highly distracting and highly, um, highly problematic. And so we have this very pragmatic approach. It's quite revolutionary, we might think, in the context of his times. He's basically saying in the Indian context of 2,600 years ago, all of these metaphysical views, which so many people concern themselves with, are irrelevant to really um, getting at the most important issues of life. It's a fairly strong stand there that we have. Uh, very, very much saying we have to take a pragmatic approach and beware of that which takes you beyond looking directly at what helps with suffering and what helps you to look at suffering and look at what the roots are uh, of that suffering. And so I think in that context it's helpful to look a little bit more carefully at what the nature of these views are that the Buddha refuses to declare anything on. What's the nature of views that makes them problematic? What's the nature of um, beliefs that are um, that fit this category and are irrelevant really to our practice? And so it's it's particularly important to see that these are views that ultimately we can't ground in experience. They go beyond our experience. And we almost necessarily tend to go there. I remember reading, uh, when I was uh, a philosophy student, I remember reading Kant, the uh, German philosopher Kant. And Kant basically said, in actually somewhat similar way, he said there are strong, strong tendencies for humans <coughs> to want to answer a whole set of questions which are by their nature unanswerable, essentially because they go beyond experience. They can't really be proved or disproved. You know, and we could probably add 
to the Buddha's list a lot of other beliefs, you know, that are that have been more, let's say, in Western culture, you know, that we that you know even are very alive right now. People debate them, you know, is there a god? Is there not a god? Um, a lot of books these days trying to express what's sometimes called the new atheism. Some of you know, especially coming from a scientific point of view, a lot of people, and then there are people who answer them and say, no, we can have these beliefs based on science as well. You know, so there, these discussions are still very much present. Or there could be the, the question of, are we free or is everything determined? Another one of these naughty metaphysical questions, right? Are we just the product of our past conditioning such that we don't have freedom, or are we essentially free beings? How do we, how do we work with that one? You know, so there are these sets of views, and what's characteristic of them is that they, the answers that we have go way beyond possible experience. They seem to be un incapable of really being uh, demonstrated to be grounded in experience. You know, and I, I remember when I was a philosophy student uh, and I was interested in meditation, I, you know, I was, um, I was extremely frustrated reading uh, all this history of philosophy where one read these proofs for the existence of God. And some of you probably, how many of you went through this in school or in university? And they were, I always felt it was completely silly and a waste of time. And I but, you know, it was kind of interesting to know that people had been thinking like this. And some of, some of it actually had some interest. But, the, you know, there were people who tried to rationally demonstrate through different kinds of philosophical, logical arguments that God exists. And I don't know if anyone in the history of humanity was convinced by any of these arguments, but they were, you know, there, there were a series of them. And, and there was something that, especially being learning about meditation at that time, I felt like I, I, I would choose, personally, I felt really drawn to choose the route of experiential investigation of spiritual questions rather than trying to give reasons for what didn't seem capable of being grounded in reason. And so this is really the kind of um, view or belief that's being questioned. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it's very helpful to see that these kind of views are tendencies, and we don't just use them in the religious sphere or the spiritual sphere or the political sphere, um, but they also are just there in everyday life all the time. You know, that we tend on the basis of extremely limited evidence or experience to make grandiose claims. And we do this all the time in very ordinary ways. You know, I'll, give, I'll give a few examples. One of them is from Sylvia. She tells the story with um, a certain amount of self-deprecating humor of a time that she wanted to do a retreat at the Zen Center in San Francisco. She wanted to be there for a few days. And so she called up the Zen Center and she found um, out that she was supposed to speak to John who took care of housing, right? And she reached someone, said, you need to talk to John and he's not there now. And so she said, okay, I'll call back later. And so she called back later, and uh, John wasn't there. Another time, John tried to um, call her, and he couldn't reach her. And then, I think maybe a fourth time, Sylvia tried calling, and she reached someone who was a Zen student at the switchboard, 
And she, she said, you know, is John there? Oh, I'm sorry, John just walked out. You know, he's not available now. And, and she said, I guess this means I'm just not supposed to be at the, do this retreat. And the Zen student very, very promptly answered, no, I think it just means that John is not here now. <laughs> so you see this tendency to form views. It's there in our everyday lives, right? It's very, very, it's very, very strong in our everyday lives. You know, I was thinking of another example from, from my own experience where, um, you know, these things just happen uh, for different reasons. Where I was, um, I go swimming a lot at the, um, the King Pool in Berkeley. Some of you know this. It's a, it's a real power spot. And I've actually made housing choices based on closeness to the, the King Pool in Berkeley. Um, it's true. And I remember that I, um, this was like 10 years ago, and I was swimming, and when one's swimming and you know, doing laps and so forth, one's in kind of this nice trance often and just deep in whatever, contemplation of the cosmos and the water and so forth. And, and I, um, uh, someone was swimming a little more slowly than me, a woman, and I passed her. And she got really, really angry and pulled my leg, <laughs> which is kind of, in the pool etiquette, it's a little bit of a no-no. <laughs> and, and she was very, from my perspective, very aggressive. And I remember, you know, it was, it was kind of not a nice experience on my part. And I remember I formed a view about her. And every time I saw her, I, I didn't, have, didn't have another interaction with her since. This was like 10 years ago. But I noticed that every time I see her, a view forms. <laughs> you know, and yeah, we haven't been in the same lane often. But even so, if I'm three lanes over, I'll notice a view forms, right? And, it, I, and the question, you know, I'm extremely limited evidence, but I probably have a conclusive view about our deep psychology and, and so forth. And we do this, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I might. That's the thing about views. It's tantalizingly possible that they might be accurate. Uh, but some of them clearly go beyond available evidence, right? And so I think we, we can find these kind of views. How, how much do we form views to find meaning that go beyond the evidence, that go beyond our experience? And you know, part of what I'll talk about in a moment in pointing to practices are, is an invitation really to look at that. Because the first um, step, really, is just to look carefully at how do I relate to views? Are there views which I hold in this dogmatic way? And so I think we can ask, uh, this is and uh, really the second main thing I wanted to mention, is what's, the, what's problematic about views? What's makes them, what makes them diffi difficult? Um, problematic, uh, what, makes the, what makes that connection with suffering? And so, <clears throat> you know, and I, I would say when we look at, at these kind of views, I would say sadly that um, for me, in hearing 
our president talked last night, I have to say that a lot of the qualities that make views problematic, I saw in that talk. Lest this be interpreted as a secular perspective, or not a secular, but a uh, what a partisan, partisan perspective, I would see the same tendencies towards views in many people critical of Obama. <laughs> you know about, the, and so it's more saying that these tendencies to unsupported views that go beyond data, beyond evidence, are very strong tendencies. And I know they're very strong tendencies in the political world. It was actually I had myself. Um, I once worked in the U.S. Congress, and I saw this up close. So I'm not talking just out of, I'm talking out of some experience. And it was actually one of the really frustrating things of being there, that things seemed to operate without so much groundedness in actual studies or experience. But they operated as if there were these political views which were just operating without really concern for what was real. You know, I have to say that. And, and I'm, I have to say that some of what I heard last night fits that. I'm sad to say that, but I, and again, I don't want that interpreted as a partisan statement because I think you'll find from his opponents often very, very similar tendencies. Um, so what makes, what makes views problematic? Um, to what, one core aspect, and this was particularly pointed out by the Buddha, is that the views that he was criticizing are grounded in grasping. They're based in some kind of fixing of what is really, can't really be fixed or can't be some way of making static or <clears throat> um, certain that which can't really be made certain. And they represent a kind of grasping which can come out of some reactivity. And the Buddha said, and you'll remember that grasping is actually one of the root causes, if not the root cause, of suffering. You know, and we'll, I'll try to make those connections a little bit later. So there's some uh, tendency to grasp or push away. You know? So in the example of my encounter at the swimming pool, it was clearly an unpleasant experience led me to generalize, right? Led me to generalize. Very, very common in our interpersonal relationships, in our ways that we relate to ourselves. We form stories based on extremely limited evidence that we take to be completely conclusive. And a lot of this, what makes it hard actually, is a lot of it's unconscious. A lot of this happens psychologically from a very young age. We have difficult experiences. I have a difficult experience with a dog when I'm age four, or broccoli. <laughs> and I, for, I form these views which can last a lifetime. They're based, they're based on some unpleasant experience, and I react to them. You know? And so a lot of political views can be based on fear, for example. That is not really dealt with. They can be based on emotions that are not really dealt with. This is one of the reasons why our practice is so crucial. Because what we do in our mindfulness practice is we study the way that our views and our opinions, our interpretations, come out of more direct experience, particularly pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And we learn how to be with the unpleasant, let's say, or the pleasant, and to see how those unpleasant experiences in our minds tend to be processed in ways that lead to views, that lead us, in a sense, away from being with the unpleasant because we don't like that or we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to stay with the fear and deal with the fear 
and so we form a view. I don't know, you know, and maybe in this context it was hard situation, but or you know, with uh, this woman at the pool. But I had a difficult experience, and I chose whatever or it just happened. I formed a view, and we do that a lot with ourselves, with with others. We form views, often coming out of reactivity, you know. And a lot of this is difficult because it's somewhat unconscious, you know. And it's unconscious, I think, uh, politically, unconscious religiously, unconscious psychologically, and and it's it's hard it's hard to deal with. A lot of this view forming activity is beyond our conscious uh, awareness, which makes it challenging. I think that's true. Again, I think that's true politically, uh, religiously, spiritually, and psychologically. So views come out of reactivity. And in that extent, they often function as a kind of defense mechanism. They're actually not really dealing with reality. If we were going to deal with reality, we'd try to get back to that fear, back to that difficult experience. But they take us a few levels above reality where they can function as a kind of defense mechanism or a way to find meaning or order in a world which often doesn't have that meaning or order. And the, the um, what the... Um, suggestion being made in these teachings is to keep going to direct experience and that there are tools to work more directly with experience and we can be with the ambiguity of life more easily. We don't have to seize on to some view as a way to deal with things. We can actually be with what's difficult. We can be with uncertainty. We can be with ambiguity. And a lot of the rush towards views is from the difficulty of people knowing how to do that, as well as getting to what can be driving the views. And so another way of saying that, maybe a second reason why views are problematic, is they're not grounded in experience. They take us into a ready-made way of dealing with experience, which tends to be general and isn't grounded in experience and, and tends to be something we impose on experience rather than being grounded in experience. You know, the, the views that the Buddha was criticizing, these religious views, are in a way go way beyond experience and they may give people some comfort, but they go way beyond experience. They're not grounded in experience. There's a lack of clear evidence, lack of clear groundedness for those, those kind of views. And partly because of that, there's, there's a third reason that in some sense when we, when we have these views and grasp onto them, we strengthen some of our ignorance. We don't, we don't really... Um, we tend to believe in the concepts. We tend to believe in the views and take them in some sense to be real. And we often forget that they are constructions to make sense of things, and we take them to be, we take them to be real. I'll probably talk about this some next time. I think they're based on a misunderstanding of the very nature of language. You know, basically that all concepts and all theories are going to be inadequate for getting at reality. You know, and they're based on some sense that that's not true. I think that's a misunderstanding of language, which I, I think I'll explore the next time. They also, also tend, and this is something the Buddha emphasized a lot, because 
they uh, tend to be fixed views, they tend to put us in opposition to others with opposite views. <laughs> Very strong tendencies. One of the reasons they lead to suffering. Views, and again, there's a way that views come in pairs. And for every view, there's going to be an opposite view. And especially if there's no way of grounding them in experience. And so we have, we have out of that, we're going to have tendencies to dispute. Uh, what happens also when we have strong views is we tend to um, distort things. We tend to select evidence to fit our views rather than be really grounded in the experience. Do you ever notice, think, look at an argument that you have with someone close to you. And notice how your mind works. Notice how selective you are in, in, in finding what you want to marshal as a reason for, for your view or not. And so we also, we also tend, with strong views, they tend to, be select, to selectively look at reality. They tend, to be, uh, they tend to distort things. And the last reason that they're problematic is that there is this connection with suffering. When we attach to views, we actually don't get at the root experience that's difficult, that's connected with suffering. And in a way, we try to deal with suffering in a, by creating fictions rather than being directly responsive to suffering, which is really the teaching of the Four Truths, which is to say, be with experience, look at the roots of, of suffering, look at suffering closely, and stay on the practical level. You know? And so um, that suffering that's caused by views, I think, is obvious when we look to disputes, when we look to fights, when we look to religious wars, when we look to politically motivated, ideologically motivated wars and conflicts, that there's tremendous suffering connected with views. But we also can look at our own experience. How much do my own stories of who I should be or what I should have done my own stories get connected with my own very harsh judgments of self or other. To what extent are views connected with that kind of suffering as well? Because I think that we can, when we look politically, religiously, psychologically, we find views connected with a tremendous amount of suffering. So the last, the last point is how to practice with this. And I want to really invite us to do two kinds of practice. And I'll close with this. The first kind of practice is really just to look at the territory. You know, and it's, it can be challenging, but look at the territory of views. Notice, and again, do this as much as possible without um, blame or judgment. Not so easy, but one of the things when we look at views, we find out how many of them there are and how they're in there in our own minds a lot. It can be a little sobering. But take a look at views. When do you have views that go way beyond your experience? Towards you, about yourself, about others, about your future, about your past, your political views, your spiritual views. Notice when they come up. Study them. Make a list. Come back in two weeks with a list of your top ten views. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> or at least top five. What are your top five views? Name them. Write them down. Look for them in experience. Again, as much as possible without a blaming attitude. 
without saying, oh my god, I got these views. I really must be in bad shape. <laughs> so really with the point of view that we're all in this together, it's a human tendency. You know, think of that story of Sylvia with looking for the room. <laughs> you know, we all do this. We all want meaning, and yet we tend to overshoot, so to speak. So first, just be aware of your views. Make a list of them. See how they fit into different categories. What are your personal views, your views about others, your political views, your religious views? See what your experience is when you're in the, where, when you're, I was going to say, in the grip of a view. When a view is strong in your experience, try to say, oh, a view is here. Let me just be mindful. Try to do that. You know, and I, we've arranged for the next period of time to be a time when there's a lot of family time around holidays. A chance for views to be evident. <laughs> okay. So that's the first, first set of practices. Just be mindful of views. Second, second is, is a, more of an inquiry practice. When you notice, uh, when you're in an encounter with someone else with a strong view, notice what your experience is like. Where do you go? Is it possible to take your experience of difference of views as an opportunity for inquiry rather than war? Someone has a very different view. Take it as a starting point for inquiry. And I learned this especially about 20 years ago when I was in a group of people. Uh, I was a young teacher at the time. And I was invited to be part of a project called Revisioning Philosophy, which was one, quite wonderful. It, had, they had, it was a grant, had received a grant and it was trying to change the whole profession and the way philosophy was seen in the United States. And I don't think it succeeded so well. But it did bring a lot of like-minded people together, which was quite wonderful. So Houston Smith was there. And some of you know Jacob Needleman from San Francisco State and Susan Griffin looking into gender issues, and a lot of wonderful people. And we noticed that with these wonderful people, many of them spiritually minded, when there were different views, there was sometimes some, <coughs> some stuff coming up. And one of the people in the program named Robert McDermott, who was later president of CIAS, and um, he made the suggestion, let's take a difference of views to be a starting point for inquiry. And so you notice there's a strong view. And for me, this was revolutionary at the time. I really loved the suggestion. He suggested when you notice yourself having a different view, notice the tendency to kind of get into a conflictive mode. But instead, just ask yourself, why is there such a charge here? And inquire deeply. You know, and there may be very different views, and there may be substantial important differences, but we're looking here at the tendency to form a, a dogmatic view or a strong view. Notice what's there, what's your experience? Why is this so important? What's the charge? Ask the question, is it possible that I might possibly conceivably learn something from this person? No, no way. <laughs> but ask that question, is there something I can learn? What's, and, ta and take your encounters in that way now, you can do what you want to with the actual dialogue, but take those encounters as a chance to look deeply. 
as a starting point for inquiry. And so I'll invite us to do those two practices. And if the second one feels like too much, just do the first one. Try to be mindful of how views appear in your experience. Secondly, do some inquiry, particularly around the charged ones. Again, it's not to say that your view is nonsensical or that is not grounded in some way. We're looking particularly at the tendency to make more of the view than the ground is there for, if that makes some sense. To kind of, in Buddha's language, overshoot or grasp or so forth. So I'll invite us to do that. So let's just sit now for about 30 seconds. We can have, we can have a little bit of discussion. It's a rich area, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So please, um, yeah. Uh, how, could you address eventually how we can have a political view uh, grounded in personal experience? Yeah. So it's a great question. And in many ways, uh, should I repeat the question? Yeah. The question is how we can have a, pers- a political view that's grounded in personal experience. In other words, is, is this just inviting us to toss aside all <coughs> political views or toss aside all spiritual views that go beyond direct experience? Buddha is actually counseling yes in, in the second case. Uh, and he's saying, just do what you need to do to pragmatically deal with suffering and put your energy there. Later, Buddhists didn't always listen to him. It's important to say. And some of this, I think, we, we can also look at next time, because this gets into some, some deep issues. Like, like I mentioned at the beginning, does this mean we should just give up views? Are there good views? Are all views bad of this kind? Um, so I think, first of all, it really invites us to look carefully, what is the nature of my political view? Is it grounded in data, evidence, And so I think that we can have views that are better grounded. Some views, I think, are better grounded in reality than others. Um, and so I think it's possible to have, have approaches which, are, which really come out of personal experience a little bit more. You know, so I think the, here the invitation is to really see how Um, how freedom comes about personally. And we could then ask, is there an analog politically? And this is what a lot of my energy has been devoted to in working with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. It's really to ask, can there be uh, a spiritually grounded political approach? And I think, you know, some of where I would first go would be just to try to have a whole different kind of approach, which is really to... uh, not demonize others, you know. So some of the elements might be to not demonize others, to be respectful. Um, can I still have a historical view 
that leads me to want to act in a certain way? Yes, completely. Can I have an understanding of some of what causes suffering? Completely. And can I act to try to end that? I think so. So that's a very short answer and not, not, not that adequate because it's a deep question, but it's maybe a starting point. But, and maybe we can explore that more also in, in two weeks. Please. I have three, so I'm guessing you'd like one. Yes, ju let's just do one. <laughs> um, I was curious if anyone knows why the Buddha was reluctant to say, I don't know. Um, that's a great question. The question is, do you, why didn't the Buddha just say, I don't know, if he really didn't know? Why didn't the Buddha announce um, uh, agnosticism, or some, what we sometimes call that. Why didn't he take an agnostic stance? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, there, there's, there's also a well-known passage where the Buddha once held up in his hand uh, with a, a handful of leaves. Some of you know the story. I think I've probably given it from time to time. And he said um, to his assembled monks, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or all the leaves in the forest? And he said, they said, all the leaves in the forest are more, O blessed one. <laughs> and he says, correct. And then he said, just so, the leaves in my hand are what is necessary for freedom and liberation. And all the leaves in the forest are what is in the mind of a Buddha. And so that would suggest that there are things that he knows which he chooses not to teach about. And it's probably, you know, it's also we don't know what he teaches about privately to people. But at least his public stance, as reported in these texts, was that um, it wasn't helpful to deal with these metaphysical issues. And that, to that extent, he, it, it would not have been correct to say, I don't know. Uh, in a sense, and there's another reason also, which is that he's basically saying the questions are not worth pursuing. So to say, I don't know, might leave people open to continue to explore them. He wanted to say, don't go there. Don't even try to uh, explain, ex uh, explore them, explain them. Because he, I think he was saying inherently they're not capable of answer in some way. That's, and I think that would, that would probably be another reason along with the, the other one. But it's a great question. Yeah. It's a fascinating area, isn't it? You know, and very uh, actually not, not dated. You know, people are still a asking all these questions. So he really wants to bring everything back to the pragmatics and say, if you're interested in freedom, don't spend too much time debating all these issues because it's kind of a, a dead end. It's a dead end to say, I don't know. And he's basically saying, uh, get out of that box of either saying yes or no on this issue. And that's why he, he said that his position was, I don't take a position the non-positional position. <laughs> Paradox comes up, right? Yeah. Maybe last one and then we'll, then we'll have to close. On a, a 
personal level, yeah. the views that we hold are often based on experience, yeah. repeated experience, and yeah. righteous indignation is a delicious thing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so how would, I guess, I guess that it sort of brings to mind the question of what about forgiveness that is, is that a component of yeah. clearing some of these views? Yeah. You know what's, did everyone hear the question? It's a question about uh, a lot of our views are based on experience and uh, we often may go to righteous indignation and what's the role of forgiveness? And it's interesting, I mean it's a very interesting question. One of the, one of the reasons that views um, are used so much is that uh, many of them uh, have some grounding in experience, right? They have some grounding and they may have um, 30% grounding or 50% grounding or 10% grounding, right? And our minds seem often to go with what, whatever percentage is available <laughs> and more or less claim that this is the whole truth. I mean, some of us, again, some of us, I mean, it's, this is very different to say than saying, this is my best guess, I'm really open to being wrong, I'm open to new data. That is a kind of approach to views which I think would be encouraged, right? It's really what we're looking for is the tendencies essentially to make something of the view more than is justifiable. And we often do that, and this is a lot of the point, we often do that because we're grasping after the view. We're grasping after, I'm in an interpersonal conflict, and you know, just look at, look at what happens when you're in an interpersonal conflict. How much is there a tendency to blame the other person for 100%? <laughs> I've noticed when I've looked at that, that there are tendencies that way. It's just as like a reaction my mind goes to. You know, when I'm when I when I don't am not so mindful, it just will go fairly automatically to say I'm right, you're wrong. You know, and if we're the self-judgmental type, we'll automatically go to I'm wrong, you're right. <laughs> right? We can go either way. They're both views. But what's interesting is that there's this strong tendency. It's a kind of defense mechanism that's not based on really being there with what's difficult. So part of what we can do is to go to what is more direct experience and forgiveness can often really help us. It can take some of the reactivity away. It can work with our hearts in ways that remove, that work with some of the suffering in ways that we become less reactive. And so I think that any of these processes which help us to be with some of the, especially the reactivity or some of the emotional basis for views, particularly um, views which seem to go beyond the given, as it, as it were, then that's going to be helpful because a lot of our views are driven by this um, basically unprocessed material. Does that make sense? You know, I think we can see that easily in interpersonal conflicts. Just, just brief. Yeah. To follow up on the forgiveness. <coughs> You probably exaggerated that story of the swimming pool, but did it occur to you <laughs> to... <laughs> For the sake of... <laughs> it probably, I would suggest to do this, but yeah. to say to her afterwards, you know, I'm sorry, I, 
bothered you can you explain what it was that bothered you so much rather than having this view of this woman over the years exactly right i mean that's that's actually you know for 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 the sake of my own mind you know and i've actually personally i do this um, often if i notice a, a view forming it's really helpful to actually go and be direct with the person if only for one's own sake with this particular person, I think I enjoyed the view. <laughs> so something, something, yeah, something. I wasn't, I wasn't doing what I teach, right? And it was also socially not so easy, right? You know, and I have to say that the first, the first experience, I didn't have presence of mind to do that. I was just shocked and terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite go there. <laughs> not not a not a great strategy on her part. She was drowning. She was drowning. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a great suggestion because, I mean, and I'll I'll close with this because we're we're over time. But it's a great suggestion interpersonally, and I I, I think I actually found, have found myself doing this quite a lot. If you notice a view forming interpersonally, like that, go talk to the person. It may have an effect interpersonally, but it can often have a major effect on your own tendency, you know. So it's a great, it's a great suggestion. Same thing to do. It basically, it basically, unprocessed reactivity tends to fester, whether it's uh, personal, interpersonal, political, or spiritual. So, so I'll invite us to work with this. Be back in two weeks. See what happens with your views. Try to do those two practices of, first of all, just really tracking, being mindful, and secondly, experimenting with when there's a charge that you find in relation to someone else's view, and do some inner inquiry with that. Let's just sit to close. Let whatever has been helpful be present. And any of your intentions for taking what we've explored or anything that came up and taking this further. And so we close by remembering that we do these practices, we do these explorations, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer what's been helpful from the morning out into the world for the benefit and the healing of all beings. Thank you so much, and uh, Thank you. to be continued. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.